This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. A growing number of Californians are opting for clean electricity to run their TVs and toasters. But how much do these people know about where their power really comes from? I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're exploring communities that are offering a choice of where to buy power. The first half of the program, we'll talk with executives from Marin and Sonoma counties, where consumers can choose power from a government agency or PG&E. They can also pick power that is different shades of green based on how much comes from wind, solar, and other renewable sources. In the second half hour, we'll dig into San Francisco's long-running battle to offer consumers an alternative to PG&E. Two initiatives on the San Francisco ballot in November are related to the city's Clean Power SF program, which is slated to start running in 2016. First, we turn to the North Bay, where a couple hundred thousand people can buy their power from PG&E or another supplier. Here to talk about what it means for pocketbooks and California's climate goals, we have three guests. Matthew Friedman is a staff attorney at the Utility Reform Network, a consumer advocacy group. Jeff Seifer is the CEO of Sonoma Clean Power. And Don Wise is CEO of Marin Clean Energy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Before we begin, I should note that PG&E declined our invitation to join this program, citing state rules that prevent California's big three utilities from talking about startup competitors. So I'd like to start uh, with with Don Wise. Uh, Why did Marin embark on this path to make its own energy to run the hot tubs up there? (laughs) Well, the reason that we went to all this trouble, and it was a lot of trouble, was climate change. Um, We had a lot of elected leaders uh, in the cities and towns around Marin County that were very concerned about the impacts on climate change. We conducted a GHG inventory, a greenhouse gas inventory, in the late 90s and set a target for greenhouse gas reduction that was pretty aggressive. And then we set out to determine how we could achieve that goal. About 45% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from stationary sources, buildings, uh, homes, and businesses. And we only had one choice of power supply. At that time, it was less than 12% renewable. The rest of it was was fossil or or, um, nuclear or large hydro. And um, we went to our supplier at that time to see if we could have another choice for a greener supply mix. And because that wasn't an option, we looked to see what what other options we might have to change that piece of our contribution to climate change. And uh, around that time, there was a bill, AB 117, state legislation, enabling community choice. Community choice is a state initiative that allows local governments to become the power purchasers for their communities. Well, this sounded like a pretty good idea. Um, We weren't sure if it would work, so uh, we supported the legislation, and then we began studying um, whether it it was feasible or not. All of our um, studies came back looking very positive, and so we pursued this idea of for many years before launching in 2010. 
And um, it's been really exciting to see the big impacts that we can make in climate change really at the flip of a switch when customers start getting supply from us that's um, twice as renewable as they were getting before. How much have you really saved? What, what climate impact has, have you achieved? We've been able to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions dramatically. And um, in fact, uh, the most recent year that accounting is available, our greenhouse gas emissions are 17% lower um, than the incumbent utility. And um, it's having a very big impact. It's also resulting in a lot of new renewables being built around the state of California. Just in the last year, we had a 20 megawatt solar facility come online last December. Um, This year, we had a 23 megawatt solar facility come online and a 99 megawatt wind facility come online. Um, Within our service territory, we're building a 10.5 megawatt uh, solar facility at a brownfield site in Richmond, which is part of our service territory. And um, we are going to see a lot of uh, local jobs. It has a 50% uh, minimum threshold for local hire for that project. And um, we have about nine other local projects uh, within our service territory that are being developed right now. Jeff Sodfers, you're sitting up in Sonoma, looked at this and said, uh, we're going to do it too. Uh, So why are you doing it and how are you doing it differently in Sonoma? Well, we followed on the heels of Marin's success and uh, it was really actually valuable to have their their example to get going. It's always best to be second, uh, a whole lot easier. Um, We we started with an interest too in climate, um, but early on we were focused on the percentage of renewable energy in our mix. And I think um, an average person would think that's a pretty good metric. But in California, hydropower isn't called renewable. Uh, It's not a legal designation. So we pretty quickly shifted to thinking about carbon content of of power. And what that did is it it meant that we didn't only focus on sources at that point. We started to realize that demand reductions, that's how much power you're using and when, that matters as much as where your power is coming from. Because if you want to cut carbon out of the grid... Uh, and you want to have a sustainable future, you got to look at the sources, of course, but it's really not how much renewables we add, it's how much fossil we turn off. That's the goal. Adding renewables itself is a tool, but it's not the goal. So when we realized that, it broadened how we were thinking about things a lot. And so we have a default service that's 36% renewable, but it's 80% carbon-free. And we also have a voluntary premium product called Evergreen that's 100% renewable and 100% local. So it's made in Sonoma County. And that was one of the new things we experimented with. Um, so it's, it's been that evolution of thinking about what really ultimately matters um, that's been really valuable for us to get our finger on. Matthew Friedman, is this a good deal for consumers? Your organization is often focused on uh, consumer advocacy, good deal, particularly for lower income people. Uh, are these things a good deal for consumers? Well, both Marin and Sonoma are offering very economically competitive alternatives to PG&E. So when customers are switching, they're either staying the same or they're even saving money on their bills. But I think what customers really want to know is, does their choice end up being meaningful? Does the decision to switch providers result in a change in the way the power is produced on the grid? Are there actually less carbon emissions? Is anything different because you made this choice? I think there the jury is out. There's a lot of talk about reducing carbon emissions or percentage of the portfolio coming from renewable resources. But so far, um, the vast majority of the transactions that have been done on behalf of customers of community choice aggregators have been short-term transactions from existing facilities that haven't actually changed any of the output on the system. So the long-term question for community choice aggregators is, 
does the grid look different because they're there, or is this just an exercise in folks taking credit for stuff that's already happening? And that's the open question. Don Wise, you claimed a 17% reduction. Uh, are you making new things happen, or are you just taking credit for things that would happen anyways? We are absolutely making new things happen. Um, we have a list uh, available uh, on our website, and I've got some copies here of 26 new renewable projects that we're buying power from. These are all projects that didn't exist before we were there to buy them, um, and only three of them are short-term. So the remainder of those are long-term, meaning 10-year or more. Most of our contracts are in the 20- and 25-year time frame. Matthew Friedman? Well, um, I hate to disagree with Dawn, and certainly the number of projects she cited are, are the number of projects. But if you look at Marin's report from 2014, less than 10% of their total procurement came from um, long-term contracts. And over 50% of the procurement in the entire Marin portfolio for renewable resources is coming in the form of short-term transactions for tradable certificates from facilities primarily outside of California. So yes, Marin has proved to be a leader in executing new contracts, long-term contracts, for new resources, but it's still a tiny slice of the portfolio. And so in the long run, I know that Marin and Sonoma are both committed to building a portfolio of new facilities that wouldn't have otherwise existed under long-term contracts. But so far, the percentage of those facilities supplying their customers is quite small. So are you saying Marin's greenwashing? I'm saying that the percent of power coming from renewable resources or statements like the amount of carbon emissions associated with the portfolio, these are marketing claims that are legal. So no one's breaking any rules. But they're not meaningful enough for customers to understand what impact their choice is having. You have to look a lot deeper. You have to look to see... If, for example, Marin and Sonoma hadn't bought tradable credits from a wind farm in Idaho, would that wind farm still have operated? Did it change the profile of that facility? Was less fossil power actually produced? And in most cases, the answer is no. Pretty much the grid is the same as it was before. Um, the meaningful test for whether or not things are changing is if new investments are made and new facilities are constructed. That's really the meaningful test. And on that front, I know that both of the CCAs here on the stage, that's part of their long-term plan, but it's not a big feature of their short-term portfolio. And that's why I would say that the jury is out. And I hope they succeed. That's what we all want. Jeff Cyphers, uh, your system in Sonoma relies less on these tradable instruments out, out of state power than Marin. Is, is that true? Is that part of the reason that they're kind of complex and people don't understand them? It, it is. So uh, we, we decided to launch with 33% renewable, excluding any renewable uh, certificates. And what that means is we've already met the 2020 goal that the investor-owned utilities like PG&E are trying to achieve uh, right out of the gate. So that was at, at our initial launch. And so that, to me, that argument is kind of a non sequitur because Anything that we've ever done with certificates, we haven't taken greenhouse gas credit for, and I believe we're the only ones who've done that, including the utilities. Um, and we also have chosen to make sure that it's entirely in any voluntary portion of our portfolio. We don't buy them going forward at all either because of the controversy, not because they're not green, but because they probably don't do a lot to help build new facilities, as you point out. But I don't think that means that they don't have greenhouse gas value. That greenhouse gas value from that facility it's a wind farm in Idaho, you say. If we don't take credit for it as the buyer, it's 
Somebody should, right? And so if we don't, and we're paying for that green attribute, somebody should. So who should? I think the key, though, is we're already successful. We're not using any voluntary renewable energy credits, and we're not taking any greenhouse gas for, value for it. So I'm unclear what the problem is because we're far beyond any of the utilities. Yeah, I, Don I, Wise. Yeah, I'd just like to add um, we're unclear what the problem is either. I think that um, the data that Mr. Friedman um, just quoted uh, doesn't sound right to me, and it, it might, you know, looking at data maybe is um, complex, and I'm happy to hope you look through that. Um, but we currently have uh, 186 megawatts of renewable energy in our portfolio. Our um, average load is 240 megawatts. So to me, that, you know, on a sunny and windy day anyway, we're producing um, over 70% of our supply from renewables. Um, granted, a couple of these projects are new, and they wouldn't be showing up in our 2014 report. Um, but I think the numbers you stated were, were really... Um, uh, understated quite a bit. Um, as the first community choice program in the state, we've been subjected to a lot of scrutiny and a lot of misinformation, um, both by the incumbent utility and their partner agencies. And that's unfortunate because it um, it does a disservice to the public and, and makes it difficult for the public to understand the positive impacts that we're able to make when we get new renewables onto the grid. The out-of-state recs that, that were referenced earlier um, are, uh, as Jeff said... Renewable they, energy credits, right? Renewable First energy credits. Um, they are um, what's used when you buy an out-of-state renewable product. Um, we used more of those at the beginning uh, when we were in the process of building new local projects because you can't start a program and have all your resources built from day one. We've been operating for five years now, and we've transitioned to this year only having 15% of our energy supplied from these tradable recs from out of state. Next year, we'll be at 3%. So again, it seems like a non-issue to me. Some people think it's an issue, uh, Don Wise, that Shell Oil is involved in supplying electricity to, uh, to Marin. Is, what do people in Marin think about that? Yeah. Um, well, when we were initially launching our program, uh, we issued an RFP. We looked for anyone that would sell power to us. We had a specific requirement of minimum 25% renewable energy. And we only got three bids. Uh, two of them were offering an adjustable rate mortgage style price, which wasn't fixed, and our elected officials weren't comfortable with that. Um, Shell Energy was able to offer us a 25% renewable product, and in order to get our program off the ground, um, that was the path forward. That was the only path forward. Um, Shell has been a good transactional partner, but we realize that some of the things that their parent company is doing um, are, are concerning, uh, particularly um, for the climate. Um, our initial contract with them was intended to be a bridge contract, and that's in fact what it is. Uh, since entering into a contract with them, we've added um, more than 30 different power supply contracts to our portfolio. So we have multiple suppliers. Um, Calpine is one example. I know you're getting power from them locally. Um, East Bay Mud is our most recent counterparty. They're local. Um, and we're buying power from a, a very diverse number of power suppliers. I think that sometimes um, individuals that are looking to mischaracterize our procurement will look at the filings that we make um, to the California Energy Commission and the, and the California um, uh, Public Utilities Commission, and uh, misunderstand that because 
Shell Energy is handling some of our scheduling, that we're actually buying that quantity of power from them. But when power is scheduled onto the grid, that's very different than actually being sourced from that party. So um, I'm happy to sit down with folks and help explain that. But the majority of our power now is coming from many other suppliers. Don Wise is CEO of Marine Clean Energy. We're talking about clean local power at Climate One today. Our other guests are Jeff Cyphers from Sonoma Clean Power and Matthew Friedman from the Utility Reform Network. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to go to our lightning round on this first half of the program. Yes or no questions. Um, Matthew Friedman, were you surprised that Mike Florio, a former consumer advocate with TURN, who is now at the Public Utilities Commission for the state, became a turncoat and inappropriately colluded with a utility he supposedly regulates. Yes. Um, Don Wise, if you could design Marin Clean Power today from scratch, would you rely less on out-of-state power and complex financial instruments? Well, if I was starting from scratch today, I would be able to buy renewable power at about half the price of where we started in 2010. So yes, I would do it very differently. We would have the ability to buy um, more in-state products at an affordable price, um, but there would still be a so bit of a time lag for the development process. It takes so about three years to develop. That's a yes. Um, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, Matthew Friedman, energy costs will increase as the state and the country confront climate disruption and people pay the true cost of their connected lives. Uh, Not in California. Not Not in California. Not if we're committed to a path of increased reliance on renewable resources that don't depend on fossil fuel prices. Jeff Cyphers, PG&E spent nearly $60 million on a statewide ballot measure to amend the state constitution and stifle competition. Yes or no? Uh, Yes. Uh, and they're doing just fine. It failed. It failed, but they're doing just fine. Uh, they're doing just fine? It, that didn't sound like a question. Uh, are they doing just fine? Yes. Fair enough. Okay, how they do on the lightning round. Let's thank them for that. Um, one other aspect of these programs is opt-in, opt-out. When people get email marketing, they want to opt-in. And that, in some areas, that's Jeff Cyphers. That's the tradition that people don't like to have to opt-out. Uh, but in these community power programs, people are automatically enrolled and they have to opt-out. Is that the right way to do it? Uh, yes, it absolutely is. If we don't do it that way, if we don't have the default service with the local provider, then the local provider cannot begin. Default service is how we finance a community choice program. So if you, if you don't own default service and the local folks don't control that, you can't go to a bank and borrow money, and you can't buy energy. The advocates for these things, marketers, et cetera, they always want opt-in. Matthew Friedman, you got a problem with opt-in, opt-out? No, I agree with Jeff, actually. It, if you don't have the current system where customers have to affirmatively opt-out, local power is simply non-viable. Just the transaction costs of identifying, marketing to customers, signing them up, they're prohibitive. It can cost several hundred dollars for every small customer that you bring onto your service. And you can't make that up in any reasonable period of time. And that's why for over 15 years, almost 20 years now, California has had what's called direct access, where customers have been able to choose alternative power suppliers. And put it in perspective, everyone was defaulted into the distribution utility called PG&E, they had no choice to leave. Now they're being defaulted into a local provider they have more say in, and they can leave. So it's really an improvement. And once customers see that, they get it. And uh, Jeff Cypher is in Marin and Sonoma. How many people have um, 
gone through the door, exited, opted out of the, the clean program. We have a hair over 10% who've opted out after 15, 16 months, and uh, we think it'll trend up to about 12%. Um, we had the advantage of going second. Uh, Marin went first. They had a very aggressive marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Yeah, we had a very aggressive marketing campaign that even involved phone banking and lots of mailers um, with a lot of misinformation. We see about a 20% opt-out rate, um, and Frequently, folks um, that have chosen to opt out um, did so initially during that marketing campaign and uh, you know, haven't changed their mind since then. Matthew Friedman, big story this year. Uh, this is part of a bigger story about moving toward more renewable electricity in California. So what happened on that front? Uh, Governor Brown got a big win there. Yeah, well, in the final evening of the legislative session, the legislature passed SB 350, which by a lot of media reports was a failure because it didn't include a 50% reduction in petroleum usage for vehicles. But what it did include is incredible, a 50% renewable energy requirement by 2030. Right now, state law requires all the utilities, the community choice aggregators, municipal utilities, all sellers of electricity to get to 33% by 2020. Well, this law will expand that make it the most aggressive renewable energy requirement in the country, 50% by 2030. It's a huge win for climate. It's a huge win for clean energy. And it provides a massive new set of market opportunities for new technologies, new solar, wind, geothermal, biomass technologies. It will promote innovation, and it will keep prices reasonable over the long run for customers. Uh, Matthew Friedman, did the utilities fight this? Um, The utilities were all opposed to this bill up until really the final days of the legislative session when they knew that they would be on the wrong side of history if they didn't flip their position. This is a classic thing that the utilities have done in every iteration of these requirements as they've come close to being enacted into law. They oppose and try to get special deals for themselves, and then in the end when they realize that the bill is going to pass, they decide to support it in the end. Um, That's kind of a marketing pitch. Uh, Don Wise, the uh, little known thing is that the utilities don't make much money on electricity that they generate. That's a pass through cost. They make money on uh, distribution and managing the grid. So if that's the case, why are they fighting these new competitors if they're not really taking money out of their uh, balance sheet? Well, we actually saw uh, PG&E supporting community choice in our community up until 2006 because they had disinvested in all of their generation resources. But in 2006, they made a business decision to begin reinvesting in um, some natural gas-fired power plants and some other generation resources. And at that time, I think they began to be concerned about um, the competition for those generation customers. Um, but we agree with you that, that uh, really, you know, if the focus could be on the transmission and distribution system and making sure that that system is reliable and safe, um, that would be a great way for, for them to focus their efforts um, and we could continue to partner and provide the generation choices in our community so that customers have more than one choice. I once heard a person say the future of electricity, elect, electrical utilities, is some combination of eBay and UPS, that they're kind of make markets and they deliver things and they're, they're not necessarily in make things that's in the box, but they deliver things. We're talking about community choice power at Climate One. Our guests are Don Wise from Marin Clean Energy, Jeff Cyphers from Sonoma Clean Power, and Matthew Friedman from the Utility Reform Network. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I just wanted to know if you find that there's an internal conflict between all the work that you're doing in in Marin and Sonoma for uh, energy efficiency work and the fact that you essentially need um, community aggregation, the more power 
that you purchase, the stronger you are. So I'm wondering, I read something about the possibility of energy efficiency utilities solely dedicated to energy efficiency work, and I'm wondering what you think about that. They're a brilliant yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to speak to that too. We, we think that energy efficiency is really important, and as a local government agency that's a not-for-profit, we don't need to buy a bunch of energy and resell it in order to exist. If we end up getting to a point where all of our customers are zero net energy, we can buy less energy until we get to that point, and then we can retire and have a great vacation, which uh, would be a great outcome for me anyway. Um, I, I think that um, the energy efficiency programs that we're currently running have really focused on affordable housing um, and the small commercial sector, but I think there's a lot more that we can do as far as automation and, um, and shifting load to different times of the day where customers can really take advantage of when power, when there's a lot of extra power on the grid, when there's a lot of renewables being generated, um, and you know, even out the load that we see during the day. I think energy efficiency is a big piece of the puzzle, and um, we're spending a lot of time and energy on ener- energy efficiency. Let's go to our next question. Next question is about the energy mix. So oil prices have stayed low for more than a year, and it seems like it will stay for another year given the global sort of recession going on. Obviously, the U.S. is doing well, but there is supply of oil and not so much demand for it because economically the world is quite weak. Uh, How do you think this will affect the energy mix in California and in the U.S.? Uh, low oil prices. So we don't burn oil in this country to make electricity anymore, but who else would like it? Matt Friedman? Yeah, uh, we don't really use electricity, oil to generate electricity in California, but we do use a lot of natural gas, and natural gas prices are also quite low, not only in the short term, but long-term gas prices, natural gas prices, are extremely low. Um, And it has made natural gas fire generation pretty cheap. But what's happening in California is quite interesting. Really, the energy mix is being driven at a policy level, which is to say that state law is driving all of the utilities and the community choice aggregators and everyone who's in the market to green their energy mix through a combination of renewable energy requirements and carbon prices on power that's trading in the California mix. Um, And that combination, along with, I'd say, just a great amount of political will that's trickling down at all levels is forcing all of the retailers in the state of California to focus on how they can make their new resource additions not reliant on natural gas. And the idea is that the gas plants, to the maximum extent possible, will serve as a backup to the clean renewable energy capacity that's being brought online. The transition is not perfect. It's definitely bumpy. But this is the basic idea, and I think we're making progress. Jeff Cyphers? And we cut our natural gas use by half, and our rates are lower than PG&E's by 8%. So there's a lot of room out there in the market. Next question. Last question. Uh, Welcome. Hi. uh, Recently, earlier this year, we heard about Tesla and this new idea of the power wall. And if this is a concept that can get off the ground for utilities and for smaller producers for local regions, how do you see this concept of a power wall being installed in people's homes affecting your business? Is this something you could partner with? Is this something you are trying to get in touch with them? Who wouldn't want one of those cool things in their garage? Yeah, we've actually been partnering with Tesla um, for a couple of years now, and we were able to install a um, a commercial uh, battery storage um, 
um, unit in uh, one of our local colleges, and it allows them to shave their their peak demand during during times when um, their usage is high. Um, we've been working with them also on the residential uh, power wall deployment, and in order to facilitate the um, the interest in that in our community, we've um, adopted a, a battery storage rate tariff that gives customers a um, an incentive payment. Um, to install a battery and allow us to um, make some uh, use it for deployment a little bit during the day for about 30 minutes of the day. Um, and this will have some benefits to the grid. It will allow um, the state of California to incorporate more renewables. And um, it'll be good for the consumer as well because they end up with some uh, backup reliability. So we think this is a really exciting piece of the future market that we're going to see ahead of us. And we're really excited to see the next steps. Let's end this segment. I want to ask each of you for a consumer tip. People listening to this say, okay, what should I do differently at home to be energy smart? Jeff Cyphers? Mm. So one of the things that is surprising is how much energy DVRs use. Get rid of your DVR or put it on a power strip at least. I would say get a Han device, a home area network device, set it up to, um, to um, cut down your power usage when uh, there's a peak time on the grid and to ramp it up when energy prices are cheap or negative, which does happen in the middle of the night. Get onto a time of use rate and you'll be able to save money and help the grid at the same time. They cost about 100 bucks and uh, we can help. Matthew Friedman? Two things. One, upgrade your lighting. Lighting is one of the biggest consumers of energy in your home. Secondly, how about using a clothesline if you live in an area where it's sunny? You don't need to put all your clothes in the dryer, um, and there's an opportunity to get some big savings while making your clothes feel a lot more comfortable. I want a bonus one, a quick one. Get an electric vehicle, and here's why. It'll increase your electric use, but dramatically reduce your emissions and your cost. And they're fun to drive. <laughs> we have to end this segment here. We've been talking with Matthew Friedman from the Utility Reform Network, Jeff Cyphers from Sonoma Clean Power, and Don Wise from Ren Clean Energy. We'll be right back with the second segment. Let's thank these three. Thank you. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Cleaner, greener power is definitely the wave of the future. But meanwhile, here's one way to bypass the local utility burning fossil fuels with a cleaner, greener home. A net zero home can produce as much power as it uses. It's not as pricey as you might think. And as homeowner Sven Thiessen told us back in April, it's more than cool enough to impress the neighbors. So that was the whole point, was to be able to prove that we could have comfortable affordable, functional, and that you wouldn't have to sacrifice anything. And so our small 5.9 kilowatt system powers the house. It also powers 10,000 miles of electric car, carbon-free, zero-emission driving. And it, the house uses roughly 25% of the energy of an average house in Palo Alto. So we have a small solar system, and it's extremely... People don't notice, except when in the summertime when it's really hot, they walk in and say, oh, this is really nice and cool. You must have your air conditioning cranked. And I get to say with this wonderful grin, I don't have an air conditioning system. All I have is good building orientation, a heck of a lot of insulation, and some shading on the sunny side. That's it. That was Sven Thiessen talking about his net zero home in Palo Alto. Now back to Greg Dalton and the second half of our program at the Commonwealth Club. We turn now to San Francisco's plan for creating an electricity market for the first time. San Francisco Mayor Id Lee opposed the program but switched to support it earlier this year, around the time he decided to run for re-election in November. 
Now the city's Clean Power SF program is moving forward, but not without controversy. Critics question whether the plan will deliver on its promise of power that is cleaner and cheaper than PG&E. And there are two measures on the November ballot that could easily confuse voters. Here at the Commonwealth Club to sort all this out, we have Barbara Hale, Assistant General Manager at the San Francisco Public Utility Commission's Power Enterprise. London Breed is President of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Hunter Stern is a business representative with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW. And Phil Ting is a California State Assemblyman from San Francisco. Please welcome them to Climate One. London Breed, uh, it's been decades that California, that San Francisco has been battling over bringing a power choice. Uh, is it really going to happen? Is it close? What, what, tell us the status. It's really going to happen. It's going to happen early next year, and Barbara can tell you more about the program. It's definitely been an uphill battle. We started the fight in San Francisco, but Moran and Sonoma has already beat us to the punch. I mean, we are determined to make sure that Clean Power SF is implemented early next year in San Francisco. Hunter Stern, is that going to be good for the city? Well, it depends on exactly what the program is, again, where the sources of power come from. I mean, we're interested in, in fact, our members build and and work on green and and uh, renewable and sustainable power, and if it means sustainable jobs, then we'll support it, absolutely. London Breed, is it going to be bring jobs? It's going to bring jobs, and we have a local hire program here in the city and county of San Francisco. A big part of this program is not only to give San Franciscans a cho- choice, which I don't recall us ever having in my lifetime a choice with regards to energy, but we're talking about cleaner, greener energy at a competitive price, even cheaper than PG&E, but more importantly, local jobs, local build-out, and making sure that those jobs are San Franciscan jobs. And of course, as a big supporter of the union, I'm happy to work with IBEW to make sure that we continue to work together to have their members be a part of this as well. Barbara Hale, is this going to bring uh, jobs that are really going to be cleaner and greener than PG&E? Yes. San Francisco is committed to launch this program uh, with a greener portfolio at a comparable price. So we're, if we can't achieve that, we, we won't start. But we're confident, given the uh, recent results of our uh, competitive supply uh, solicitation, uh, we're confident that we'll be able to bring renewable power to San Francisco, real renewable power to San Francisco, at a price that meets or beats PG&E. Phil Ting, uh, help us put this in the state context. First of all, is this a good thing for San Francisco? And then let's look at the statewide, what's happening. Well, I think absolutely it's a great thing for San Francisco. Uh, statewide, as Mr. Friedman talked about earlier, we just re-upped our commitment to renewable energy. We're moving the goal line. We're making sure that half of the energy in California is going to be renewable. I think long-term, we obviously know the goal is to be 100% renewable. It's just really matter by what date. And so we clearly need to make sure that every enterprise, whether it's Clean Power SF, whether it's Marine Clean Energy, whether uh, it's PG&E or SoCal Edison or anybody who's doing the utility business is actually moving toward that goal. And I think everybody is. Barbara Hale, some people wanted Governor Brown to go to 100. He went to 50% renewable power. Some people say with microgrids, et cetera, he could have really swung for the fences. Is 100% renewable within reach in San Francisco? Uh, We think it is, and given the bids that we recently received, uh, we're confident we'll be able to provide a 100% renewable option for San Franciscans. And we're really excited about that option because, 
you know, uh, we're a not-for-profit. What are we going to do with the proceeds of the sales of electricity? We're going to reinvest it in our community. And we see the uh, super green option, as we call it, a great way for San Franciscans to help us reinvest in the community and build uh, renewables locally, invest in energy efficiency with the local workforce. Is that 100% renewable without fancy Wall Street instruments? That's correct. Hunter Stern, believe it? It's, it's possible. Um, but I think the, the key is going to be, first, disclosure and making sure each customer knows where the energy is coming from and whether or not it is local sourced and or sourced from California. Um, I think that's, it's, it's both critical and it's also good practice, good marketing, trusting and, and, and treating your customers right. Um, for our standpoint, uh, what, what Phil mentioned about SB 350, IBW is one of the strongest sponsors of that bill. Um, it provides jobs. That structure and what the state has done put our members to work. So if we can replicate that here in San Francisco, we will absolutely support it. But if we can't, then there will be a different discussion. But isn't there a concern that a solar plant has a lot of construction jobs but it doesn't have a lot of operating jobs like some fossil fuel plants. So is there fewer long-term jobs for your members in renewable energy than there is in some of the old dirty stuff? Well, so two things have, are on the generation uh, scene statewide have already started. One is the number of people working in power plants are, are greatly reduced, and that came about from deregulation 20 years ago. Um, so that process or transition is already happening. The second is that the jobs created in the, in the construction or, or the project work, um, because these projects need to keep being built, and, and what we heard earlier, uh, pushing out or replacing fossil fuel with renewables, you're going to need to keep building these projects. So, yeah, maybe in 30 years, but not, not in the near term at all. London Breed, in the near term, we have uh, the ballot in San Francisco uh, this November. There's propositions G and H. Tell us how they came about, and uh, they're kind of confusing. I looked at them. <laughs> uh, well, um, IBW wrote Proposition G. Um, Proposition G would have limited the city's uh, clean power program, the ability to use the three-state um, uh, uh, definitions when defining what clean power is and what we would be able to do as city and county of San Francisco in terms of calling those um, things uh, clean and green. And also it required an additional third noticing, um, which would have cost anywhere between $130,000 and $300,000 a year for additional noticing to the voters about the program. And so my uh, proposition, Proposition H, only says that we want people, uh, we, San Francisco will follow the uh, state guidelines in what we define as clean power, the three guidelines in terms of what being green power um, implies. And so um, we actually um, now agree, IBEW. And Did you guys city, go out drinking one night and work we, it out? Uh, uh, we, we, actually, came, we came to an agreement, um, <laughs> and it wasn't just that Proposition H was right and Proposition G was wrong. It was more, we, we realized that we want to work together. We want to work together and we want clean power. We want local jobs. We want to, this is really about the environment. We have to think long term 
and part of, you know, sad to see, you know, fighting amongst people who care about the environment. But ultimately, um, we came to a consensus. And right now, what we want the voters to do is not support Proposition G um, and vote yes on Proposition H, because we don't want to do anything to slow clean power in San Francisco down. And I think ultimately, you know, we both agree on that. Yeah. But and is anyone spending any money to educate voters on that? Because well, um, most see, people haven't heard of these things. Well, we're, we're working. We're working I'm working on it. On it. Yeah, we're, um, working, we're on working on it. Uh, Sierra Club just uh, endorsed no on G, yes on H. The Chronicle, no on G, yes on H. There's a lot of Democratic clubs and other clubs throughout the city who are, have made um, commitments to uh, put out information to the public, the San Francisco Democratic Party. And so definitely, um, as the election moves forward, you'll see a lot more no on G, yes on H all over the city. And IBW is contributing to, to that program, too. And London said it just right. We took the best pieces of both G and H, and we got a much better measure, and we're supporting H. And what if it fails? Uh, status quo, nothing changes. No, failure, well, like the old adage is failure is not an option. But I think in this case, um, most people, when they do read, uh, e even though there is some confusion, they like each of them, um, but H is much more understandable. And when you tell them it's also a consensus member, measure, they vote for it. They support it. Building anything happening in Sacramento on this front? There's some things uh, statewide. There's other uh, jurisdictions, cities and counties are trying to do the kinds of things. Uh, is Sacramento going to weigh in on this? Well, well, I think one of the things that I've been working on is going back to Hunter's point, which is really around <clears throat> truth and disclosure, which is to make sure everybody knows really what's in their powers. I, I think you mentioned it in terms of is your power really renewable or is it a bunch of Wall Street instruments that are trading uh, between different power entities? And I think what we want to do uh, more in Sacramento is to make sure that people really are making that educated choice so that when they're paying a certain amount of money for renewable energy or for a super green program or whatever whatever the proper label is, that really it really is green, that it's green energy that isn't just from Idaho or Oregon, but that's green energy here in California. I already said I think California's goal should really be 100% renewable energy, but I really believe that it should be 100% renewable energy that's built in California managed in California. Uh, we think it's the best way to create jobs long-term. We think it's the best way to help our environment. We think it's the, the best way to reduce greenhouse gases. So even if uh, California could get cheaper electricity from solar in the Nevada desert, it shouldn't do it? It should get sort of its homegrown electrons? It's really hard to imagine that because you lose so much of your energy in transmission. Uh, right now, I have solar panels on my roof in San Francisco. They do a great job. If I bought so those same solar panels from Nevada, I probably lose half to 75% of it in transmission to my house. So really, I can't imagine a situation where renewable energy in Texas is going to be cheaper than renewable energy in California. We're talking about clean energy in San Francisco with Phil Ting, California State Assemblyman, Hunter Stern from the IBEW, London Breed from the San Francisco County uh, Board of Supervisors, and Barbara Hale from the San Francisco Public Utility Commission. Uh, I want to stay with Phil Ting and ask you, we heard in the first segment uh, about shale oil, and a lot of uh, progressives don't like the idea of getting electricity from a big bad oil company, but turn that around and say, if you want oil companies to get off oil, isn't it better for them to have other ways to make money, and they, better for them to be selling clean electricity than dirty oil? They could turn that around, Phil Ting? You're on the State Energy and uh, Commerce Committee. Well, what we want to do is make sure that we're actually building energy and procuring energy in California. 
and that's really what that goal is, 100% renewable, um, regardless of who's producing it or who is building it. We want to see more solar farms, more wind farms, more uh, biodiesels, more geothermal, uh, more clean energy here in California. It's been one of the big reasons I've been such a fan of rooftop solar and solar farms all around the state is because it really means a difference when we have it built in-state and we're not buying it from Idaho or Texas or some other state. Hunter Stern, can you see panels actually being made in California or the manufacturing? Obviously, installation is a California right. job. Right. Big solar uh, industrial arrays in the desert. But most of the solar panels, uh, I think mine were made in Germany. Most of them were made in, uh, in China. China. I mean, right. anything going to be made in California? Well, there, there are small manufacturers, actually a couple in the Bay Area and several in the state, but they're very small. Um, uh, the largest... Uh, United States manufacturers actually an IBW plant in Tennessee, but it's also a fraction of what uh, of what we're using currently. I, yes, I think so, um, but only only if we're more successful at some of the uh, international WTO issues that we're trying to resolve with China right now. Big trade war with China on solar panels. I want to go to our uh, lightning round here at, at Climate One. Uh, first is for Barbara Hale, but for those. Um, who may not ride Muni, uh, the San Francisco Utility Commission had an ad campaign trying to get people to do things differently. So if you saw this campaign, uh, these may uh, ring true for you. So uh, in that context, Barbara Hale, our number two, this is yes or no, our number two is your number one. Yes. Uh, Mayor Ed Lee has gone full frontal. Um, That's a reference to a dryer I don't know what the mayor's dryer is. I'm going to say he's made smart choices. Yes. Front-loading washers and dryers. A washer, yes. London Breed, San Francisco has plans for clean energy projects on city-owned land that have been languishing. Those projects should be built to generate money and clean power. Yes. Those, also for London Breed, those projects are not proceeding because voters don't want the people who run Muni running the power grid. No, I don't think so. Well, I'll say no. Um, For some reason, three here for London Breed. The San Francisco 49ers would be playing better if they had stayed in the city. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Hunter Stern, the IBEW is carrying water for PG&E on Clean Power SF. No, no. Did you have to think about that? No. I'm just kidding. I was, I was thinking of an electrician carrying water. It's a bad idea. Yeah, there you go. Okay, fair, fair enough. No electrician should carry water. Fair enough. Uh, Hunter Stern, Jimmy Hoffa is buried in San Francisco. Yes. Under, house, a, so, under house, solar panels. of Fine Arts. Okay. Um, Phil Ting, monopolies don't like competition for customers and want to squish it like a bug on a sidewalk. Monopolies don't like competition. True. Also for Phil Phil Ting, last one. Politicians and business executives who deny that fossil fuels are disrupting the climate should repent. (laughs) They should study harder. How do they do? I think they did pretty well on that. that, I want to talk about the fires uh, in this state. They're having a big impact on electricity generation. Uh, Barbara Hale, there was the Rim Fire up in Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite was a year or two ago. How much did that cost the city, and are we still dealing with the impacts? Oh, it cost the city millions of dollars, and yes, we're still de- dealing with some impacts. Uh, you know, we had a powerhouse that uh, was affected modestly, thank, thank goodness. 
the systems are all up and running. Our water supply is secure. We're not worried about that. Uh, but yeah, we've had to rebuild roads. We've had to uh, do a lot of um, tree removal in order to uh, avoid hazards. We're worried about, you know, one of, the, one of the, the blessings of the drought is we didn't have to worry as much about erosion uh, uh, right immediately following the fire. We're, we're, ready, we're ready for water just the same now. Uh, but yeah, we've, we continue to deal with the impacts of the rim fire, and our hearts really go out to the folks in the Valley Fire, uh, who's been so affected, similarly affected, devastating. Phil Ting, the, the whole state's on fire. Seems like that really affects energy infrastructure, power lines, et cetera. Um, you're at the state assembly level looking at that. How can California kind of protect its energy supply from these fierce fires? Well, I think a couple ways. One is, again, to adopt measures to stop climate change. Obviously, because we have limited snowpack, that's really limiting our water. Uh, the other effort, which the governor and the legislature are working on, is really reducing uh, water consumption. Our water conservation efforts have been amazing. It's wonderful to see, once you set aggressive goals to Californians, how they step up and they've, meet, they've met them. It's extraordinary to see the huge amounts of constriction in water use up and down the state in all different communities in all different environments, and I think that's one other way. Uh, we passed a water bond last year. We're going to need uh, another one probably pretty soon. It was just scratching the surface. We know we need a lot more work to make sure our water infrastructure is being repaired. It's something that we'll be coming back to the voters with. Hunter Stern, uh, of course, that's good for jobs in a way, but you don't like to see uh, repairing from fire, uh, fire ravaged areas. Um, how do you see that uh, rebuilding of places like uh, the Valley Fire, the Rim Fire is really tough? Yeah, it, it, it is tough. I was actually up there uh, for a day last week um, just as they were starting to ramp up. Um, our, our members were placing earlier this week 100 poles a day in, in, that, in that Valley Fire area, and they hope um, that the electrical work will be done and people will have electricity by and large um, by the end of this week, uh, tomorrow or Saturday. Um, it's a big operation. It's, it's heartbreaking because some of the guys are working at, at, in areas where their friends or families have lost their homes. Um, our members also work in some of the geysers, the, the geothermal plants um, uh, in, in that area, and one of those were damaged uh, by fire. So it's painful. Um, it is good. It is, it, it is impressive and, and important work, um, and we wish we'd never do it again. London Breed, uh, after Superstorm Sandy hit New Jersey, uh, people that kind of had their own power came back sooner. So how will local power make San Francisco more resilient from future weather shocks? I think um, we have to think about it in terms of um, after the 1906 earthquake, you know, San Francisco set out on a mission to build what is now uh, the O'Shaughnessy Dam and Hetch Hetchy, where we get our water from, has been one of the best things that has happened to San Francisco, so much so that we, you know, here in San Francisco, we use water bottles. We always fill them up in San Francisco. People talk about how great our water is, but the people who made the decision to do this didn't think that, knew that they wouldn't be around in order to enjoy it. And so I think of, you know, just uh, clean energy and protecting the environment and the kinds of things that we need to think about doing long term the same way because this is what's going to happen when we put together the right plan to do the right thing in order to protect the environment. We may not be here to experience the results of that, but there will be a lot of other people happy that we made the right decision to do this for the city. 
Of course, some people think that that hedge uh, hedge was the environmental crime of the century, but that's... Uh, they still it, do. Yeah, but... they still do, yeah. <laughs> and if you watch the, the National Park series with Peter Coyote, you see how that affected uh, efforts to not have similar things happen in, in other national parks. So statewide, uh, Governor Brown has some ambitious goals. Uh, we haven't talked so much about the building, building efficiency part of that, Hunter Stern. Uh, some of the electricity and the fossil fuels, gasoline gets all the attention, but elect, uh, energy efficiency is a big deal, and hire lots of electricians to do it. Right, and, and more, more importantly, the IBW has already established a state-certified uh, lighting. Somebody mentioned lighting in the, in the first panel, and there is a state-certified lighting process or board organization where where if you're a building, if you're a home, if you're anything in between, you can dial them up and they can advise you about uh, lighting systems, installation. Um, obviously, we'd, we'd like you to hire IBW members to install it, but this is work for people and it saves energy and it saves you money in the long term. So absolutely. Filtering efficiency is not seen as sexy, but it can be, you know, the nega, idea of negawatts, the energy you don't use, is a big deal. And isn't that really a, a key way to, to get toward the governor's goals? No question. I mean, energy efficiency is the fastest way to recoup your money. Uh, the buyback uh, in terms of how much money you save is much faster than uh, if you build solar, uh, solar panels on your roof or if you build wind energy on your roof. That, before you do anything else, is make sure your home, make sure your building, whatever, wherever you live, is energy efficient. Invest that time, get an audit. Uh, it's very easy, whether it's, you know, wrapping your water heater, whether it's getting weather stripping, whether it's doing new windows, all of that, like you said, is not sexy. It's one of the reasons I've been looking at ways that we should label property. LEED has been really successful for office buildings. Now, every new office building is LEED certified. Uh, what we haven't seen is with residential homes, any labeling. So uh, what w I would love to see is an actual label, like an Energy Star label that really is known. I, I buy Energy Star appliances. I can't tell you how much I save, but I know it's a good thing, and I, I have trust in that label. We want to see the same thing in residential homes because I think that we'll start to see value in that for consumers who really are energy conscious. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Hi, this question is for Hunter and Supervisor Breed. Um, while it's really nice that you guys are on the same page now about G and H, it feels a bit like the voters and the residents of San Francisco are the collateral damage when it comes to confusion. What are you guys going to do together to ensure that the communication to residents in San Francisco is clear about Clean Power SF. Underbreed. Thank you for your question. Um, I just want to be clear that, you know, the only reason why I felt it was important to put H on the ballot is because G was on the ballot. Um, I would have preferred not to have either one, but I do think it gives us an opportunity to talk about clean power and to let the public know that they can sign up for our clean pow power program now. Um, we actually have a joint meeting tomorrow with LAFCO and the PUC to talk about the bids and talk about some of the options that we're going to have in terms of rolling out our program. But ultimately, the goal is to be on one page, it's to communicate one message, and it's to get clear information out to the public about the program and how people can sign up for the program early. All of that will come from the PUC, and I'll work closely with the PUC in order to make sure that messaging is clear to voters so that they are excited about our clean power program, because ultimately we want it to be a huge success. Hunter Stern, are you going to actively, it's one thing to support H, but it's another thing to support Clean Power SF. Is the union going to actually actively support that? Again, it really depends on what the program is and where the sources of electricity come from. If, if it is as advertised, uh, 
Uh, it sounds pretty good right now, uh, but it really does depend. And I think the other side of, of the question is people have never consumed energy like they consume, you know, bread or... or uh, Marshmallows? Well, or, well, I was thinking of cars, actually. <laughs> okay. I mean, you, you don't shop for electricity, and part of that is because it's been a monopoly, but part of it also is because um, we didn't, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, it was always there. Uh, and so I think whatever effort or whatever opportunities we have to make sure people can get more consumer savvy and make those choices is beneficial. That's Go to our last doing. audience question. This is for the whole panel. I understand that fracking has been going on in California since the 1970s. And overall, I would like to see um, what your feelings are regarding, like New York, stopping fracking in California once and for all in order to help save the environment and uh, keep it for our children. Phil Tang. Fracking is a state issue. There were a number of uh, fracking bills that came up on the assembly floor my very first year in 2013. I supported all of them, including a fracking moratorium. Uh, unfortunately, I, like on 350, was in the minority around petroleum usage. Uh, what we did do was pass SB4 that was written by Senator Pavley, uh, co-authored by Assemblymember Adam Gray, that really set up the most stringent regulation of fracking in the country. And what we have is we have an agency, Dodger, that is really looking at collecting that data, looking at that information. And my hope is the data is going to tell us what we all believe, which is the significant environmental dangers that are going on with fracking, and that that will allow us to really move much more aggressively. Um, we've had trouble convincing the governor to join us. That's been a major issue. The governor has not been willing to slow down fracking or to have a moratorium. So for those of you who are thinking, like, what, what could we do? I think one of the things that we could do is to have that conversation with the governor. Again, I, I think that at this point, the uh, proponents of fracking have really used the lack of information, lack of data to help them in their efforts to, to stall further regulation. My hope is that as we get data and information, it'll just reinforce what we already know to be true, the huge environmental challenges that fracking is causing our state and that we can move appropriately. Let's end quickly here with uh, other, one other thing that people can do concretely. I think we heard from Assemblyman Ting about uh, getting to the governor on fracking. Barbara Hale, what, what can people do to one action people can do to be energy smart uh, in San Francisco and the Bay Area? Sign up for Clean Power SF. Uh, CleanPowerSF.org. You can sign up now, and we'll be serving you in the spring. London Breed, can't say the same thing. Since she said that. <laughs> the other thing is you can make sure folks vote no on G and yes on H. And Hunter, hire a union guy to change your light bulbs? So well, that's part of it. No, I think, I, I think the, the answer to fracking and, and fossil fuel in general is to transition to clean fuels and renewable energy, and that means electric vehicles, and our guys would love to install those charging stations for you. <laughs> They are very cool. We have to end it there. We've been talking about uh, clean power in the Bay Area with uh, Phil Ting, California State Assemblyman, Hunter Stern from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, London Breed is president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and Barbara Hale is with the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and online. I thank you all for coming. <laughs>
Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.